You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Really excited today to have one of our own here, um, Adam Lowry, the Chief Greenskeeper and co-founder of Method Soap who also is a Stanford grad, class of 1996, chemical engineering, right? So uh, without further ado, I am going to send it straight over to Adam. Take it away. All right. Thank you, Heidi, and thanks, everybody, for having me. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story of method today, and I'm going, to try, I'm going to bounce around to a couple of different topics that I think are interesting in the way that business can be used uh, today as an, as an agent of positive social and environmental change, and that's going to touch technology and creativity and a bunch of different things. The story of method, like a lot of businesses, starts with the frustration of its founders. Um, in this case, it's myself and my high school buddy, Eric Ryan, who's the guy on the right, right up there. I was, uh, before I started Method about 10 years ago with Eric, I was a climate scientist. I actually worked about a seven iron from here at the Carnegie Institution over on uh, Panama, just on the other side of the parking structure out here. And um, while I was at Carnegie, uh, I, had been a, I had been a product designer before that. And at Carnegie, um, I, I came there because I was really interested in environmental science and I wanted to work directly on the issues. But in my four years there, I learned a couple of things about what really kind of motivates me. Um, the first was, well, first of all, there's a lot of brilliant sciences, scientists over at Carnegie, and I, unfortunately, I wasn't one of them. Um, the second was that I was uh, growing uh, frustrated with the fact that the output of our work there was scientific in nature, and it was about writing articles in journals, and it was working on the Kyoto Protocol, and it was reaching an audience, but that audience was one that was uh, already concerned about environmental issues. And for me, what I really wanted to do was reach everyone else. I also noticed at the time that every brand that I tried to use as someone trying to live a more sustainable lifestyle, this is 15 years ago, asked me to make a sacrifice. It, the core proposition was, the earth is dying, you need to save it, so buy this ugly product that costs too much, it's brown, it doesn't work, and you have to hide it under your sink. And I actually couldn't think of a brand in history that had ever been successful based off of, of course, a proposition of sacrifice. I mean, even diet brands are about, uh, about healthy eating and healthy living. And th at this time, um, I actually moved into a flat that, uh, actually, this flat on Pine Street in, uh, in San Francisco. I described as, we lived there with three other guys, and I describe it as uh, an ironic place for a cleaning products company to be born. Um, it was exactly as clean as you would expect five male 25-year-olds apartment to be. Um, but Eric comes from uh, a branding and advertising background, and he's one of the most brilliant mar brand marketers that uh, I've ever met. And he was starting to look at big consumer categories and ask the question, why are we seeing uh, a, a reinvention and in interesting brands in each consumer category but, but not quite everywhere. And so we started looking at the cleaning uh, category, and this is what we saw. We saw a, a sea of sameness. All of the products very similar in their, in their proposition, their design, and certainly in their communication. As we dug further, we, we got a couple of clues that this was a place where there might be some opportunity. The first was we were really starting to see a, a macro consumer trend of uh, the, the styling of the home or people becoming a lot more vested in uh, the things, the, the, the things you were, they were curating for their homes and how they were taking care of it. Concurrently with that, um, 
whether it's a blessing or a curse, I have a degree in chemical engineering from this great university. And uh, what that means is looking into these uh, categories and what the chemicals were that made up these products, I was able to sort of, I came up, I started asking my, myself a question, what was dirtier, what we're cleaning up or what we're cleaning with? And, and that started to be uh, a question that we were asking right as sustainability as a movement was starting to catch a little bit of, uh, of mainstream momentum. And so, you know, we learned, you know, cleaning was a dirty business. And so there was a basis of a business plan there. And, and that's how it started. That became our mission, to, ri to rid the world of dirty. And it's a mission that we're still 100% committed to today, uh, more than uh, 11 years later. Part of what we do is really simple. Uh, we bring scarcity, uh, we, we bring things that are scarce to these categories. Um, fun is one of them. Uh, we uh, put naked people in advertising. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, and, you know, initially we were kind of toying with this idea, you know, innovative for the home or starting to ask questions about blurring the lines between who, who uh, we are and, and the experiences we have in our home, blurring the lines between personal care and home care. And that, just bringing those very simple ideas started to form the nucleus of what we thought was a business idea. And so what we did is we quit our jobs and we said, all right, we're all in. We're going to start this revolution and we're going to take on uh, the largest of the large of global multinational companies uh, and we're going to give it a go. And so uh, we started the revolution in this 200 square foot office above a bridal boutique on Union Street in San Francisco. Um, our first goal was really to get the product designed and Eric and I put our life savings into this business. It was a, a small five-digit number at the time and uh, we, we still have that uh, fully invested in the business. We're all in. And the idea was we, we wanted to use that money to try to develop the, the most premium and most high-quality product uh, that we could. Part of that was leveraging uh, bottle design. And we actually spent over half of that money building a mold for our very first bottle, which is just a very simple, elegant, um, kind of bullet-shaped bottle. Uh, that, that meant skipping, skimping on everything else that we could, including uh, when we made the decision that photography would be a really interesting way uh, to, uh, a really interesting graphic direction for the products because it was something that um, was very elegant and personal but had never been used in the cleaning space. Uh, it meant using me um, and Eric's girlfriend at the time as the models. Um, and uh, it, that's Eric actually shooting the... Um, the pictures. He was in a photography class at the time. And, you know, we certainly couldn't afford uh, sales staff. So we did it the old-fashioned way. That was, uh, this, this is how we do it. We put on a tie, we get a bag, and we'd get uh, four homemade products. And we would drive down to a grocery store. We'd walk into the grocery store at 6 o'clock in the morning. We'd corner the store manager, and we'd start pitching him on why he had to have method on his store shelves. And if anybody have ever, ever done anything like that, you realize we got a lot of doors slammed in our face. We were, we were kicked out of pretty much every grocery store in the greater Bay Area. But we persisted, and uh, on one faithful day, uh, February 28, 2001, after about a year of trying, uh, we actually got this store, Molly Stones and Burlingame, to say yes to us. Um, there's a funny story about this day, this day that I'll, I'll tell very quickly. Um, 
we had been in this store before. We came in this day and we said, hey, we're back. You know, what do you think? You got, you know. Store manager said, all right, guys, I'm going to give you a shot. You're going to have space on aisle five, but you've got to have product here in four hours. And we, of course, had no product. We didn't have any production. We didn't have anything. We had, we had some prototypes. And so I went to the lab. Eric went back up to the city, grabbed the keys from all the workplaces of all of our friends we had given samples to. Uh, I made up juice. Uh, we got some bottles. We got some uh, you know, inkjet printed some labels, stuck them on funnels, paper towels. We borrowed uh, some wine cases from uh, a friend of mine. And uh, I bought that invoice book on the way down uh, to back down to Burlingame, which is the type you kind of rip off and sign and hand to them. And, uh, that's how we filled our first shelf, $68 was our first revenue, and that's a picture of the shelf. If you look closely, you can actually see Eric's girlfriend on the right two-hand skews, and uh, that's me on the, on the left two-hand skews. We went to Home Depot, and we, we bought like sinks and stuff like that, and of course, we didn't have any money, so as soon as we were done with the photo shoot, we went back to Home Depot and returned them. <laughs> And so we built the business from that one store to about 20 stores over the course of the next year. Uh, and our routine was to get up every morning, um, put product in the back of my parents' truck that they let us borrow, and drive around to stores and fulfill the shelves, uh, count bottles, see what we had sold, you know, try to fix the facings and maximize the merchandising as much as we could. And, uh, and what we did after, time, after a little while is we, we managed to somehow get some syndicated data about how cleaning products sold in typical grocery stores. And we put two and two together and realized actually we were, we were doing pretty well. And, and that was the point at which we realized we, we, we really had the potential for a business here. And so with our, uh, our fledgling business are starting to get off the ground, of course, we were out of money um, and we needed some investment. Um, that was a little bit uh, harder than it, than it looked. You know, this, there's Eric in the, in the wine aisle doing demos for uh, you know, cleaning products and getting people to like, hey, will you smell this cleaning product? Um, he, he had friends from his ad days kind of coming by and saying, Eric, man, you need some money? Like, what happened? I thought you had a job. <laughs> um, so um, one of the ways that we thought uh, that we could really prove the business case for this is to get into Target, and, and that would help us gain investment um, and, and really scale the business. Because of the design sensibility and the sustainability of our brand, we thought, hey, this is going to be perfect for Target. You know, we're going to go in there, they're going to love this brand, and you know, it's going to be all good. That wasn't exactly how it went uh, when we first went to Minneapolis. Uh, this is a, a, an exact quote from the buyer at the time who didn't like the name, he didn't like us, he didn't like, he didn't like anything about it. Um, and so, you know, here you are as an entrepreneur, you've, you've invested your life savings in this thing, you've run out of money, uh, you're going to your, you know, your, your big whale that you're going to land in order to take your business to the next level, and you've just been told a snowball's chance in hell. And so, it, th this was a low moment, and it was one where... Um, we have some values uh, at Method that I'll talk about later, but one of them is what would MacGyver do? And um, that's really about resourcefulness, which is a requirement of, of any startup. And so our first MacGyver moment was um, hiring and uh, bringing to the, uh, to the fold uh, a famous designer uh, named Karim Rashid. This was a time when Target was starting with Michael Graves and other designers. They were starting their... 
uh, cadence of bringing designers into sort of what they called class for the masses. And we thought, okay, if we can, we're about design, and if we can really hook ourselves up with a, a really well-known designer, bring that design to the method product, then, you know, maybe we can get back in. So, uh, excuse me for a second. So what we did is we used some of Eric's advertising uh, connections, and we managed to get a meeting with the marketing group at Target. So keep in mind at most retailers, the merchandisers or the merchants are very different from the marketers. So the guys that run the guys and gals that run the television commercials are very different from the buyers. And we've been told no by the buyers, so we go in to the marketers, and the marketers have, were, were more enthusiastic about this concept. They saw the, you know, the potential, the sizzle, they liked it, you know, okay, this is this is a cool concept. And they invited some of the buyers in. And uh, we got Karim Rashid to fly to Minneapolis. Um, you know, he's a typical designer guy. He's, he's about 6'4". He was wearing a white suit and pink goggles, you know, and, and you know, his larger-than-life presence. And, you know, we put on this dog and pony show. And, of course, the, uh, the merchants were none too pleased that we had kind of done this end-around. But uh, what, what ended up happening during that meeting is uh, we... I was actually not at the meeting uh, because I was developing this, this product up here on the right, which is a dish soap that, uh, that dispenses out of the bottom. You pick it up and squeeze it and dispenses out of the bottom based off of an insight that uh, would be a better way of doing, uh, of how, how to do hand uh, dishwashing. So I had developed this prototype, of course. Um, at the very last minute, we send it first overnight to Target. Uh, the guys don't have any chance to squeeze it or test it out or anything. It goes around the table. And the buyer who says Snowball's Chance in Hell picks it up, squeezes it, and he said, oh, my gosh, even I would buy this. And that was, uh, you know, the Hail Mary pass was complete, and we got, uh, you know, our equivalent of, of our, next, our next chance, which was we got uh, distribution in 100 Target stores on a test basis, 50 in Chicago, 50 in, in the Bay Area. And I'll tell another quick story. In our infinite wisdom as as merchandisers, we put our innovative Karim Rashid product up on the very top shelf, not realizing that what would happen is people would look at this thing, very puzzled as to what it was, wanting to smell the fragrance. They would rip the bottom off of it, smell the fragrance, put it back on, and dish soap would start to drip down <laughs> the entire display. You laugh. You laugh. But that was another low moment where, uh, I mean, imagine you've got 100 stores, you finally got your shot, you go into every store, and there is dish soap all over everything. And cleaning up dish soap is not fun. And so I hired all of my unemployed friends, uh, which were many, and we, and we literally got into every one of those 100 stores every two days for three months uh, with wipes and paper towel and clean stuff up. And, you know, we, we had been given visibility to the data of how we were doing, and the hurdle rates that we were given were the hurdle rates of a national brand that's well-known, has 100% awareness, on, on price discount on NCAP. And we were on NCAP, we were unknown, and we were not discounted at all. In fact, we were premium priced. So we, we weren't hitting those hurdles. So we go back in for our meeting to say, all right, this is where we're going to learn whether or not we're going national or not. We had, didn't have very high expectations, but fortunately, one buyer started to look at the data and realized that actually they weren't selling any less Dawn. They weren't selling any less 409 or Windex because when they were selling Method, we were actually incremental to the category and we were much more profitable for them 
than a lot of the other commodity brands that they carried in the space. And uh, much to our surprise, uh, we were actually given national distribution. And uh, that was a, a real big turning point for the business. It was one where we started to be able to really scale. Uh, I am going to skip a bunch of chapters here, but it's, it's, it was the beginning of a very successful model. And I don't want to belittle an incredible amount of work as well as an incredible amount of ups and downs that have happened between that, which was in 2003, and today. Um, but the model's working. Uh, in, in 2006, we were the seventh fastest growing privately held company in America, number seven on the Inc. 500. Uh, in, in 08, we were the uh, number 16 on the fast 50, 16th most innovative company in the world. And more importantly than any of that, um, you know, we've grown the business to, to $100 million in size. And most importantly, we're the fastest growing on the top line and the bottom line business in our space, despite uh, direct competitive attack and the worst recession uh, that we've seen, that any of us have seen in our lifetimes. And, and so, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, but what's, what's happened over the years is we've started to talk, method has kind of come, become a verb inside of our own four walls. And we talk about using our methodology or methodizing something, because really what we do, design, sustainability, building performance into these products, each of those elements are things that other people can try to do. And so our, the secret to our success is more about how we do it than actually what it is that we do. Um, and what we do uh, and how we do it allows us to actually use business to create positive social and environmental change in the world. It's something that it has now become uh, known as, we call it the method method. Uh, we actually just recently published a book in September, uh, this book under that title, which is really, it's a book about our business model. And it's, it's our, our theory is, is basically to share as, as open source our business model because we, we do some things well, we do a lot of things not so well. But since our business success is based around how we do it, the more that people interact with it, the more we learn, the more I think that we can stay ahead. And so um, you know, I think you'll find that, uh, those of you who choose to read it, as uh, incredibly uh, transparent and uh, open about how it is that we do things. So that, you know, the method method has a number of components to it. Uh, in the book, there's seven. I'm going to focus on, on three of them that I think are particularly important. Um, innovation and the role of innovation in creating positive change in the world. Uh, the power of storytelling uh, to, to augment that. And lastly, creating a, a culture and a methodology within a business that allows it to continually evolve uh, over time and maintain its competitive advantages. So the, the first is innovation. Um, innovation is, is a word that's talked a lot about, and it's, it's actually really hard to define. I think what's really unique about what we've done at Method is we've actually figured out a way, really, to use innovation to create positive social and environmental change through business. And the secret to that is serial innovation. It's, it's as a business committed to sustainability, we're committed to progress because there is no sustainable product yet. So when we do something innovative, we have to get people to follow it so that we can do something more innovative than that and keep going. And as long as we do that and change the rules of the game, then we're changing the rules of the game away from scale, which is what our competitors are good at, to creativity, technology, uh, and design, which is what we're good at. So um, before we get into our innovation model, I think it's actually important to level set about 
what is the lexicon, what is the, the feeling of, the, and what is the language that is used to describe cleaning products? So I've got a little uh, video. We never actually uh, published this, but it's a video that kind of, I think, captures pretty well. We did it for internal purposes. Captures well the, uh, the spirit uh, of uh, where cleaning products have been in the past. that cleaned our hands. Clean was familiar. Clean was something we could trust. Clean was simple. And somewhere along the way, clean got complicated. It became more and more powerful. But in the process, clean got dirty. Just smell the Ajax ammonia. Super strong. We added chemical after chemical to clean. Convinced the more toxins we added, the better clean became. And where ammonia counts? Ajax means less work. We covered surfaces with ammonia, soaked hands with triclosan, softened clothes with beef fat, and started a dangerous love affair with bleach. Two bleaches are better than one. We became obsessed with odor, with shine, with sparkles, forgetting things shouldn't just look clean, they should actually be clean. We made clean triple strength, super concentrated, pine scented, and ultra bright. And in doing so, we damaged our eyes, our lungs, our skin, and our homes. We let toxic chemicals drain into our waterways and pollute our air supply. Suddenly, we had to protect ourselves from clean. Yellow rubber gloves became a staple, childproofing became a million dollar industry, and the dirtiest place in the house turned out to be under the sink. Bam! Without wow. thing. But I have the cleaning power of a giant! Pepper on dirt. You need what have we done to clean? Why have we made it so toxic? Why have we made it so dangerous? Why have we made it so dirty? So It's time to make clean clean again. Clean doesn't have to sacrifice power for safety. Clean can remove bacteria without removing brain cells. Clean can strip grime without stripping hands. Clean can clear filth without clearing forests. Clean can be free of toxic residue. Clean can have no consequences. Clean can be clean. Matt, a cleaner clean. So like I said, we never actually ran any campaign of that sort, but I think it, ha it has a useful sort of orientation about uh, the language of the category. Uh, what I want to talk about is, a, is the case of laundry detergent, because I think we've proven out this ability to use innovation to create positive change uh, most in the laundry category. Nowhere was this language more relevant and more used uh, than in the laundry space. Uh, everybody knows that laundry forever has been bigger is better. Um, but as we started looking into the, into the category, you know, we, we took our usual lens, which is how do we redesign this thing, not only from an aesthetic standpoint, but from a sustainability and actually from a technology standpoint. We started from a place we normally start, which is asking ourselves, what, you know, what does a truly sustainable laundry detergent look like? And 
that, it turns out, is actually not that hard to imagine. Uh, a, a truly sustainable laundry detergent is probably not a liquid that gets consumed all the time with every load with your laundry detergent. It's probably something where you've got a load of detergent in your machine, you press a button, it gets used, out the back comes dirty, soapy water, you separate the water from the soap from the dirt, water and the soap go back in the front, dirt goes out, you know, you use it in your compost or you know, in your garden to grow vegetables. And actually, that technology pretty much exists today to be able to, to do something like that. And so you ask yourself the question, like, well, why, you know, why doesn't that exist? And I think it actually it, it lends itself to something I'll talk a lot about, which is the, uh, the role of adoption in, in the innovation process. So um, you know, starting with that end state in mind, what, what we developed was actually a couple of steps shy of that, of that vision. What we, what we first noticed in the laundry category, big dissatisfier, jugs. Big, messy, wasteful. You pour it, it spills all over the place, it's messy. And so back in 04, we created uh, the, the first uh, triple concentrated laundry detergent. Now, it may not seem like that big a deal. There is a, some technology that's required to concentrate laundry detergent to that degree. And what we did is we took that uh, to our retailers, and we were able to do some pretty interesting things. Uh, we actually displaced Tide uh, out of the lead-in in the laundry aisle at Target. Um, this was a, you know, if there's ever a, a first shot triggered in the, in the laundry revolution, this, this is the one. Uh, where we were able to move over uh, the largest and most well-known consumer brand on the planet and get that prime space. And we were able to do that because we were using a third as much shelf space and creating a lot more profit in the category per bottle purchased uh, than the commodity brands that have been, had been there. So we are serving a role for our customers. This started to catch on. We launched it nationally. Uh, we ultimately took this to Target or to Walmart um, a, a little while later. So this is now late '04. We take it to, to Walmart. I call this our "Where's Waldo" photograph. Um, the, the method is on the second to bottom shelf there, the little blue bottle. Um, but you can see how much how much less space it takes up. We actually didn't go ahead with this test with with Walmart, sort of for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, I, we started a dialogue with Walmart that uh, they very much carried on which was about the role of compacting laundry detergent and making it smaller and more environmentally friendly. Obviously, that's a, a big thing at Walmart. What we saw was really interesting after that. So about 15 months later, um, All, a Unilever brand at the time, launched All Small and Mighty with some very similar graphics and language around a triple concentrated laundry detergent. Um, they started to run ads. The one on the left ran in August of 2004. The one on the right went, uh, ran in October of 2005. Uh, interesting quote from an, a Unilever intern, anonymous, at the bottom, uh, which I find particularly interesting. A couple of years later, uh, May 24, 2007, when Helena Misk, Unilever's marketing director, said, we're delighted that everyone has decided to follow our lead after P&G and uh, all of the other laundry brands, uh, at the pressure of Walmart, went to compacted formats. That actually happened, uh, it was done and dusted by May of 08, so in less than four years you've got the largest and one of the most stodgiest consumer categories on the planet with the most ingrained consumer habits, laundry. You were taught how to do laundry by your mother, and so it's very hard to change. But here you have an industry with method serving as a catalyst, working with customers to syndicate this uh, movement, actually creating a change that ends up saving uh, these are numbers very similar to our initial presentation to uh, Walmart, uh, where uh, 400 million gallons of water, 95 million pounds of plastic, and 125 million pounds 
of cardboard just from compacting laundry detergent, the scale of that category. So, you know, I get, I get asked the question a lot, well, okay, you got copied. Everybody, everybody went to these compacted formats, you know, isn't that a bad thing? Well, in, in one sense, sure, but it, going back to our mission as a business to create, to use business to create positive social and environmental change, that's an opportunity for us to innovate again. And that is exactly what we did. Um, what we did this time uh, is we took it a step further. Um, we developed this product, um, which is, uh, this is the same number of loads that you get in the typical large jug, but this is smaller than the size of a soda can. This is smaller than, uh, or it's uh, eight times concentrated, uh, rather than three times concentrated. And the way we're able to do that, uh, I don't have time to go into the technology, but uh, just briefly, is to say that forever liquid laundry detergent has been water that you put detergents in. And just like putting sugar in your coffee, you can only put so much detergents in, those, in that water before you run out of room. And that happens at about three times concentrated. We developed an entirely new chemistry which is the, the, the analogy is putting a tiny amount of coffee on the inside of your sugar. It allows us to actually concentrate laundry detergent by putting a tiny amount of water on the inside of detergent to eight times. And it's something that you know, is, is uniquely ours. And of course, that has uh, further uh, sustainability uh, benefits that are immense. And we've, sent, we've since uh, done a refill version. This is 85 loads of laundry detergent in a pouch. If you use these two products together, you cut down on the packaging and waste footprint of laundry detergent by over 90%, um, not to mention the carbon benefits and everything else. That's great. I love that. I'm an environmental scientist. I geek out about that. But the most important thing about this product is not any of that stuff. The most important thing about this product is it's the world's only one-handed laundry detergent. It's light enough. You pick it up, four squirts in your laundry, you're done. And that solves a major problem that people have and a dissatisfier that they have with laundry detergent um, that makes this a product that uh, is, is revolutionary in a very non-revolutionary category. And so this is sort of the model um, for us. If, if we can use innovation, build, build sustainability into the quality of the product, use design, we can create innovations that actually change people's minds about the, what a cleaning product is and what a cleaning product does. And actually, through a series of steps, we can actually reach that end state where you've got push-button laundry and a truly sustainable laundry detergent. We've actually built a business model that allows us to not be tied to the legacy costs of selling you liquid laundry detergent, lots of it, and getting you to overdose it, um, so that uh, that business model allows us to actually evolve over time as things move more quickly. In other words, you know, what's really important about our innovation model is that while technology and design and creativity are critical to our innovation process, I would argue that actually the most important part of it is adoption. Because you can create the most beautiful, the most sustainable product in the world, but if nobody wants to buy it, if you don't get a lot of people to buy it, then I would argue that it's actually not innovative. I'll give you a, another quick example. We get, um, so this is, a, this is an all-purpose cleaner that, that we make. And I get the question a lot, um, you know, why, why don't you guys uh, just install a machine in stores where I can take this back in and scan the barcode and it fills it back up? And it's a good idea. Uh, it actually would be a more sustainable format than, uh, than selling you another one of these or even a refill for one of these, um, which, which we do sell. But what's 
What's interesting is that this has actually been tried. And aside from some of the hurdles of getting a retailer to install plumbing and electricity and all of that to the aisle, um, you know, here's another example actually from the UK uh, where you can just kind of go and put your fabric softener in there and do it. These, these formats have been tried over and over again, but they've never really caught on because while they are interesting and actually you could argue are more sustainable formats of product, they, they make it less convenient to actually get, do the sustainability thing, not more convenient. So how many times have you forgot this on the back of your car and the back of your bike when you go to the grocery store? Now imagine trying to bring your bathroom cleaner, your toilet cleaner, your empty laundry bottle. It's not going to happen, right? There have been other formats that have been tried where, you know, like this one where you have a little teeny bottle of concentrated that you put in there and then you've, the consumer fills up the water and you kind of shake it up and, you know, and, you, and you do that thing. But same thing, you're actually making it harder on the consumer to actually uh, adopt that habit. And so without building that into the design process, you haven't actually designed innovation for adoption. And, and I would argue that's why these formats haven't necessarily caught on. What I, what I think is interesting is, you know, I mentioned we have refills for pretty much everything, and we have a refill for this product. Um, the refill is a nice, uh, more sustainable format. I mean, the, the starter unit comes in 100% post-consumer plastic. Um, there's a lot of benefits to it. Putting it in a refill reduces the footprint of the system by a lot more. Um, but again, you know, you could argue that that refill thing is, is, is a more sustainable format. But what we've done that's actually much more powerful is we've gotten people to use this format. And we've got a lot of people to use this format. And that gives us the license to innovate again. So that when we do, and whether we make a durable uh, primary format or we find an interesting way to do refills in the store, when we do that, we're going to do that making sure that we design it such that it's more convenient, not less, for people to actually adopt that format. Because that's the way that we'll be able to uh, create innovation that creates change. So now I'm going to move on a little bit to uh, the role of storytelling. So I talked a little bit about innovation. Telling stories is actually really important because it's what allows you to connect the emotion of your brand with people. One of, one of the most important things that, that, uh, that we think about in creating stories is, is we want people to, you know, method is very much a movement. It's a philosophy and a movement. And we want people to join that movie, movement. We, uh, we call ourselves people against dirty. Every bottle that we make says designed for and by people against dirty. Um, and so how do we get people to try to join the movement? Um, we do that by telling stories and by integrating elements of storytelling that we think are really important. The first is that every story has a villain. Um, I talked about the laundry jug. I call it the SUV of the consumer products industry. It's heavy. It's wasteful but it's supremely profitable for its makers. Um, they trick you into overdosing. If you take, take a, jug, a laundry jug cap and look at where the dosage line is, and you'll see that it's about half to a third of what you need for, for a full load. Uh, and what do most Americans do? Fill up the cap. It's a lot of waste in that. Um, the dirty little secret being that they're huge jugs that are mostly full of water. And so we, uh, when we launched this product, we actually created a campaign. It was a spoof off of a drug-free America, so uh, drug-free America. Um, say no to drugs. <laughs> Are you a drug addict? <laughs> Frequently overdosing. 
Um, and, you know, much like the naked people I showed earlier, we, we, we try to be a little tongue-in-cheek, and we try to create a little bit of fun with the brand experience um, of method because, you know, let's, let's face it, it's laundry. It's, it's something that, you know, most people don't uh, really enjoy doing. Um, one of the things we did um, is to point out this, the wastefulness and the messiness of this, uh, this overdosing, we, we created this video called Laundry Smarts. It's wash day at the Smiths. <clears throat> Say, here they are now, ready to get started. Laundry can be hard, but step by step, it can be manageable. To start, grab one of the large jugs. You picked a big one, and bigger is always better. Now hold firmly with one hand and gently remove the cap. Make sure to fill only to the line. Neglecting this detail could end in a sticky mess. Lastly, just put it in the, the detergent. Make sure that... Oh. Now, wasn't that easy? Let's try that again. You want fantastically clean clothes? With this compact but powerful tool, it's just four quick pumps, and you're done. Now, wasn't that a happy ending? Yeah, so, so not the type of thing that you would see from, you know, from Unilever. Uh, let, let's face it. But the other thing that's really important about doing something like this is, you know, we're a business that doesn't have money for a massive media budget, and we're up against massive media budget. So when we create content that's interesting, maybe a little bit funny, maybe something that somebody passes along to somebody else, it allows us to, to, to multiply our message much larger than our media spend uh, would normally allow. And that is one of the critical ways that we're able to uh, build our brand and get more people, you know, to join the movement as people against dirty. Uh, the the second component of a story that I think is really critical is that stories um, must create uh, participation, and this is something that we've uh, we've been able to do. Um, we we have an, a, an incredible emotional connection between our uh, our what we call advocates um, rather than consumers and our brand. We get people that uh, take pictures of themselves. They, they write letters like this that are, that are effusive with praise. Um, we get these every day. Um, we get four times as many compliments as we do complaints um, uh, sent to us, which is uh, about the opposite of what you normally get um, as a consumer products business. Um, we, we get people that take pictures like this with uh, automatic dish detergent. It's fairly rare in our categories. We um, we have a nine-year-old that made that, uh, that butterfly out of one of our hand-wash bottles in the upper right. I think she had some help from her, from her parents. We have dogs against dirty. We got dogs against dirty down there. I mean, this is, an emotion, these are, this is evidence of an emotional connection that you would not normally have with your bathroom cleaner. And, you know, really, really, I think one of the reasons because of that is, it, or the reasons for that is we're really bl blurring the lines between, between who we are and who we serve, who you are. Um, and that's something that's very human uh, for, for people. On the, on the uh, point of creating participation, we've, we've done this in a couple of ways, some of which have been opportunistic and, and some of which uh, have been uh, planned. But I want to talk about an opportunistic one. Back in about the time I was selling that stuff to, to Molly Stones and we didn't have any money, we were trying to prove the safety of method products. And one of the experiments I ran is even though it cleans as well as a, as a toxic cleaner, I, I put flowers in a toxic cleaner and method in water and I, as an experiment. And I, I learned that 
a daisy would live as long in a bottle of method as it will in a bottle of water. And um, if you put it in a regular cleaner, it, it, it dies pretty quick. Um, and so we, we were using this photograph in a lot of our uh, advertising and collateral for, for a long time, since about 2003. Well, in 2008, uh, Clorox launched a brand called um, Greenworks. And Greenworks is a, is a Clorox brand that's meant to be a greener product. And they trademarked uh, the daisy um, or the usage of a daisy on their, on their packaging. Uh, and, and they didn't know that actually we had in what legal, what in uh, the legal sense is known as prior usage. So if, if we've been using this thing, we can continue to use it. Well, one day they had a, a, a lawyer that didn't know this, um, wrote a, a, a nasty letter called a cease and desist letter and told us that they were going to sue the pants off of us if we didn't stop using the daisy immediately. So what we did is um, we said, okay. Um, we sent them back a, a, a note. And we created this site, which is vote, votedaisy.com. Um, you can go up here, and uh, you can click on that, and you can get the uh, cease and desist letter that they send us, which said things like Clorox has invested millions of dollars um, in uh, pioneering the green cleaning category, which is sort of interesting. Um, and then what we did is uh, I'm just going to run this video from here. We uh, created this video on that site. Hey guys, it's Eric and Adam. Hey guys, it's Eric and Adam from Methods Founders and People Against Story. We're here today in San Francisco with our friends, the Daisies. This Earth Day, we need your help to save the Daisy. That's right, that iconic symbol of purity, innocence, and peace. Sadly, a major corporation is claiming that they own the rights to it. Oh, the Daisy! That's ridiculous! Did they invent the Daisy? Did they design the Daisy? It's like trying to own the rights to the cucumber, the question mark. No, seriously, they sent us the cease and desist letter saying that they own the daisy and that we have to stop using it. So they're essentially saying, don't touch the daisies. Even though we started using the image of the daisy about six years ago just to show how safe our products were because we don't test on animals. So we just figured we'd test on our little flower friends instead. And we never tried to own it. No, because it belongs to Mother Earth. And since daisies can't talk yet, we asked one of our scientists, and Fred said, well, the results are in, and while a daisy will last three days in method all-surface cleaner, nothing takes care of daisies better than Mother Nature. So, since we don't have a lot of money for lawyers or parking spots, we just figured we'd ask you, the public, to decide who should the daisies belong to. Method, Clorox, or Mother Earth. And while we'd be honored if you voted for Method, we urge you to vote your conscience. We believe flowers belong to the planet and not corporations. <laughs> So as, uh, as you can see here, um, oh, I lost my spot. Mother Nature is firmly in the lead. Um, and uh, more importantly, we got a tremendous amount of press on this. We got a lot of people that um, kind of took notice about what we were doing. Um, and actually, to this day, if you type in Clorox and Daisy, you'll see about 10 pages of people going off on those guys. Um, and, and talking about us, as a, more importantly, as, as you know, somebody who's authentically trying to do something real. 
Um, so another element of storytelling, uh, you got to be willing to offend. Uh, stories that uh, aren't willing to do something interesting or willing to offend uh, just aren't interesting and they don't get passed along. Um, we, the, I, I mentioned the naked people in the advertiser. This was the first print ad that we ran. Um, we actually cut it off at the cactus, so it was even a little bit more discreet uh, than, than that picture up there. And you would not believe the amount of people that sort of came out of the woodwork and were outraged that, um, that we were suggesting that they get naked to clean. They clearly missed the metaphor, but um, <laughs> nonetheless. Another example is that, that jug ad where we had the jug and our, our laundry detergent in front of it. There was a line in there that said something like, it's so freaking concentrated that you can X, Y, Z, right? And it was talking about the concentration. I had no idea that putting frickin' in a print ad would also create a massive uproar. Um, and you know, I don't know how these people watch daytime television, but, um, <laughs> but what was really interesting is uh, when you do something interesting like that and you step out a little bit, what can happen? There's a reason you hire a professional advertising company to help you advertise your product. You know, to, to get the point of what your product is. This says, for a junk-free America method, laundry detergent. Detergent. The secret is our patent-pending formula that is so freaking concentrated. This <laughs> is so freaking what, is John Melendez writing copy for this company? <laughs> so there's no amount of money that can buy that. And um, that is just, it happened for free, essentially, by doing something that was a little bit interesting. Um, so I'm running a little short on time. I'm going to start to move pretty quickly through, through some things. Um, the best stories are first person. Um, this is something we did, uh, we actually, when we launched our laundry product, we were the, the only vendor to ever be able to go into Target headquarters and hand out product uh, samples to everybody uh, that worked at Target. Uh, we created actually a uh, crowdsourced video. Uh, so we did a video where we asked all of our advocates to send in video of themselves. We stitched it all together into um, a video that, that we then actually ran and got... Uh, a, a great amount of uh, pass-along value for, for that. I'll, I'll show you just uh, maybe a little bit of this. So this was all done by advocates. There were no actors, anything in this. Even once did we see a light, we did. 
Of course, is a little less edgy than some of the others that we were doing, but it was uh, supporting one of the things that we were trying to do, which was to conquer the disbelief of that this little bottle would actually do 50 loads uh, of laundry. And to be able to do that in a way that has pass-along value and actually gets your consumers um, to actually tell the story for you is pretty interesting. Uh, I promise this will be the last video. Um, this one's just kind of fun. I'm Kai, chemist at Method. You might be familiar with this. At Method, we've been working on a concentrated detergent that works on tough stains but comes in a much smaller package. We've been told some people still don't believe this 20-ounce bottle packs such a punch, so we thought we'd clarify with a few in-office Method examples. 20 ounces of tequila can turn the creative team into a mariachi band. <laughs> is a hair gel can convince our entire office that Doug, our packaging engineer, belongs on the Jersey Shore. <laughs> and 20 ounces of method laundry detergent can do 50 loads of laundry. Convinced? So that was very much around the same thing, trying to convince, overcome disbelief that the, that the concentration would really work. And, you know, Kai is really the chemist that actually developed that product, and Doug is really a packaging engineer, and he was fist-bumping, you know, our, our CEO. So, you know. Um, the, the last thing about storytelling I'll, I'll talk about is, is that every, every good story has subplots, and for ours, it's sustainability. Uh, I always say, I, I, I recently did an interview with... Um, a green business publication, and the interviewer asked me, he said, Adam, don't you find it ironic that Method has become an icon of green marketing by expressly not doing it? And, um, you know, I found that as a really interesting question, and, it's, and, and it, it hits on one of the really the big differences between our brand and a lot of other brands that make green cleaners, which is our brand is not about a white bottle and a picture of a leaf and planet on it, as you guys have just seen. Um, but for us, we're very much a dark green business at the core. Um, it's, it's, in fact, what I do for the business. And it's, it's things that we give access to people uh, to, to examine. Uh, we give people access to, to look at it. One of the things we've done is uh, we actually now deliver about 70% of all of our volume nationwide using uh, a fleet of 15 trucks that run on waste vegetable oil biodiesel. It started with one truck two years ago, and it's grown now to 15, and, and as I said, most of our volume. Um, something you wouldn't necessarily know when you, when you saw it at the shelf. We're doing some really interesting things like uh, we've got facilities that use no water and recycle all their water. Um, MacGyver moments like putting solar panels on the side of trucks in order to run uh, uh, lift trucks in our factories. Uh, the upper left is actually a, a silo that we installed uh, to house the plastic that we make all this stuff from, which is 100% post-consumer. We're the only, only people in the world that are making all this package, custom packaging, out of 100% PCR, which lowers the carbon footprint of our packaging by 85%. Uh, we're a certified B Corporation. For those of you that you don't know about that, it's a, it's a, um, 
uh, independent, audited, real-time sustainability reporting on, online, uh, and we actually change our articles of incorporation to expand fiduciary duty to include the interests of society and the environment, uh, not just social. Um, and you know, this is something that has allowed us, uh, as I've shown before, to earn a lot of media rather than pay for a lot of media. And more importantly than that, it's actually um, worked uh, in our defense a couple of times. Um, a quick case study is that uh, a blogger uh, about uh, two years ago from uh, a Fortune blogger on the CSR blog uh, read a McKinsey study and kind of took out of context um, a, a statement that was made that uh, she said a method uh, widely praised for environmentally pra friendly practices refuses to compromise for the environment when it comes to the aesthetics of their products, which was completely uh, not what was said, but that was her interpretation of it. What, what was really interesting is um, two other bloggers that actually blogged for that same blog for Fortune immediately uh, came to our defense and said, the article glosses over two big questions and simultaneously maligns one of the most innovative companies in the sustainable business space method. Um, and uh, another fellow Forbes blogger, Avril David, uh, recently critiqued hip detergent manufacturer method for refusing to reduce plastic content of its containers, but the article misses the point. So here's an example where we actually didn't do anything, but just by being transparent, we had two bloggers in the same, uh, same space who actually knew more about our brand come to our defense, and that's the type of self-reinforcement um, that, that making that subplot uh, transparent to your consumers can create for your brand. The last, uh, the last element of the, the method method, so to speak, that I want to talk about is culture. And uh, culture is something that can be uh, a lecture in and of itself. Um, for us, we, we, think of, um, we, we think of culture as something that is our number one uh, sustainable uh, advantage because if we don't have a culture that can continually innovate and continually reinvent what we're doing, then we can't stay ahead of our much larger and more well-resourced competitors. Uh, we have a, an open space, as you might imagine. Um, we have these things that we call wiki walls, which is if you go to Methods offices in San Francisco, you'll see everything is put up on the walls, which is actually a really intimidating thing if you're a product designer or you're a graphic designer putting unfinished work on the walls. And we have to train and hire the right types of designers that can deal with that. And then we also have to train our people to be able to work and collaborate and say yes and rather than yes but and build on work um, that's up on those walls. But it does foster um, an idea flow that's really exceptional. Um, you know, we curate a lot of things that we think are cool um, from all around the world. Uh, we have, this is Sarah. She's, um, if you uh, email or call method, you will... Uh, get your email or call answered by a real person. Um, and uh, Sarah is one of those people. She often just sits in a beanbag chair next to our product development floor to be able to fire across questions that she may have about things. Every Monday morning we get together um, and we talk about the news of the business. We talk about you know, everything from birthdays to, uh, to strategy. Um, we prototype everything. Uh, we have uh, the ability to prototype photography, uh, shelf sets, uh, we have a lab, um, obviously, that uh, we, we can do prototyping in. Uh, this is actually fairly unusual to have a lab in downtown San Francisco. Um, we can because the products that we make out of it are not going to explode. Um, you know, we do 3D printing. Um, we can do uh, rapid prototyping of mold so that we can do product realization. And all of these things reinforce uh, our ability to move very quickly and design very quickly. 
Uh, we do things like, uh, you know, we very much design for ourselves. So our first, the first thing we do is design something, put it on the sink in the office, and say, hey, tell Josh, do you like it or not? And this idea of prototyping is something that we even take all the way to our hiring practices. So anybody who looks for a job at Method, if you get far enough in the process, you'll be asked to do a homework assignment. And that assignment will always have three questions. There'll be a strategic question about the job that you're interviewing for. There'll be a tactical question. And the third question is always simply, how would you keep Method weird? Um, keeping Method weird is one of our five values. I mentioned MacGyver. There are a few others. Um, but what this does is it has an amazing effect to actually to, to orient the people that we hire around the mission that we have and the methodology that we have to actually succeed as a business. And what Keeping Method Weird is about is how would you participate in the culture of this place? And the homework assignment has an amazing effect of separating the window shoppers and the good interviewers from people who will really be uh, additive and contribute to the culture of this place, which is ultimately uh, the secret of how we try to succeed in the marketplace. So. Thank you very much. I think we have the time for a few questions. Uh, sorry, not more, but let's uh, get after it. Do you patent your formulas? Uh, in some case, sorry, mute that. Uh, in, the question is, do we patent our formulas? In some cases, yes. Um, in some cases, no. What we usually do, patent is the technology. So like the technology that allows this thing to be inside out and more concentrated, we have a patent on that. But formulation is not something that's really worth patenting often because the separations technology is such that the second we launch something, our competitors can analyze it and figure out the formulation. So, and then they could just tweak one ingredient a little bit. And so um, really, it's really about creating platforms that we can have as intellectual property and then the model of moving very quickly. Let's go in the back and then we'll come here. Um, before you had time to make a brand, like in the very beginning, how did, how did Method stand out against all other soap that was being sold, like yeah. distributed? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I showed the picture of that initial shelf set. And things like having a very clean aesthetic, having simplicity. I mean, the Method brand name was born out of this idea of simplicity. And using things like photography, which brought um, a very different feel and a premium feel to a product, in the, in the early days were enough. And you know, we'd surround it with shelf talkers and things like that. But all we needed to do is get somebody to say, hmm, I'll give that a try. And where we started, you know, Molly Stones is a premium grocery retailer. And so a greater disposition toward people that would be willing to try that. Just get a couple of people to try it and then deliver on the product experience. And you know, while our brand is a little bit premium, you know, 10, 15, 20%, the value is really there. When you, when you use a method product, hopefully some of you do, <laughs> um, you, you really see that you know, it's a modest premium and what you get for it is really worth it. And you know, from there, you build it as fast as you can. So let's go here. Yeah, um, you talked about uh, engaging the consumer. And besides the crowdsourcing video that you did, what, especially when you were beginning, um, in creating this really engaged audience, what are some other tricks that you used or things that you did? Or did it just come naturally? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's. I think one of the most important things when you're starting a business is to realize that, um, you know, like for us, our customers are different from our consumers. Our customers are Target, Molly Stones, and Lowe's, and Whole Foods. Our consumers are you guys, right? 
And it's really easy to lose track of the fact that the people that matter are, are us, not our customers, even though we can't do it without our customers. And so for us, things like, in the beginning, we had the, the number, the phone number on the back of the bottle would ring on my cell phone or Eric's cell phone. And we would literally answer every call. And it'd be like, hey, I, you know, I tried your stuff, and I didn't like this, or whatever. And you get, even that, I mean, it seems really simple, but people don't do stuff like that. That type of thing is incredibly important. And if you just treat people like people, uh, at least in our industry, that was something that was you know, not done. And those little things, I mean, just by doing that, you learn and you can build from those things, try other things. You can do stuff in store, you know, like, you know, where the founder's sitting in a lab coat, you know. It, it, it just kind of depends on what you're doing, but it can be done. So let's go here. Probably one we'll more. Here. What are your plans concerning international markets? Are there huge differences between the local markets concerning clean yeah. products? Yeah, internationally, um, we're actually having some, some great success. We, uh, we had initially started in the UK. So we have, a, we have an office in, in London with, with six people in it. And we actually are the largest hard surface, green hard surface cleaning brand in the UK right now. And uh, we started with Anglo markets, but now we're starting to go into you know, France and Belgium. Uh, we started in Australia. We're now starting to go into parts of Southeast Asia. And what we're finding is that um, while the cultures are very different, the role of a better cleaning product for the subsegment of consumers that are willing to pay a premium for a higher quality product and for customers who want to break the commodity cycle seems to be relatively universal. And so uh, really the biggest barrier for us is just being smart about how we enter into each and every one of those unique cultures and places. Uh, but we're doing it, and uh, we've got a nice international business that's actually uh, growing really quickly. So. Oh, maybe last question. <laughs> All right, right, last question. Uh, okay. So was it your office you sent Leno uh, that freaking ad? Uh, no, we actually we had nothing to do with it. We actually had nothing to do with it. That was a consumer that you know saw it, and you know they send their things into Leno. That was the beauty of doing something like that. Okay. Well, then on behalf of DFJ, SQVP, and Basis, thank you for coming. Cool. Thank you for your talk. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.